Hey, if you're interested in learning more about how cutting-edge technologies like natural language processing can help automate your security response, you might want to register for our November 28th webinar sponsored by the firm Empow. I'll be speaking with Empow founder and CEO Avi Chesla about how natural language processing technology can be used to break out of the SIM big rules paradigm. To register, just point your web browser to securityledger.com slash no rules. One word, securityledger.com slash no rules. Hello and welcome to the Security Ledger podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, the editor-in-chief at the Security Ledger. In this week's episode number 121, we don't expect Target or Walmart to have surface-to-air missiles on the roof of their warehouses. Yet today in cyberspace, we expect companies individually to defend themselves against everything from the script kitty uh, sitting in his, in his parents' basement all the way to a nation-state attacker. And it simply makes no sense. President Donald Trump signed legislation last week that finalized a major overhaul of the U.S. government's cybersecurity capabilities. But is more and better international cooperation the real fix for a cyber war? In our second segment, we'll speak with Jamil Jaffer at the firm IronNet about private and public sector efforts to de-escalate cyber tensions and prevent cyber war. But first... Advocates for a right to repair scored a major victory last month when the Librarian of Congress granted vast new exceptions to the Digital Millennium Copyright Act to owners of all manner of digital devices. These so-called 1201 exemptions make it possible for owners of electronic devices that use digital rights management to circumvent that technology for the purposes of repair. But having the legal right to circumvent digital rights management is one thing, and being able to circumvent it is another. In our first segment this week, we're joined by Nathan Proctor of the U.S. Public Interest Research Group, or PERG, to talk about the Librarian of Congress ruling and the adverse consequences that the DMCA is having 20 years after its passage in an era of software-driven and internet-connected stuff. To start off, I asked Nathan to talk about the DMCA and how that law has contributed to a growing assault on ownership rights and the rights of owners of all manner of electronic devices to repair their products. Uh, My name is Nathan Proctor, and I am the National Campaign Director for U.S. PERG's work on right to repair. So the DMCA, Digital Millennium Copyright Act, uh, was a update to copyright law to create a mechanism and protections for kind of standard software piracy. So if you remember the late 90s, the heyday of pirating uh, digital media um, and Napster, you remember how easy it was to you know pirate music and video games and uh, movies. And that this is most of this copying that was going on. I could probably go down memory lane and remember all the pirated uh, goods that I had back then, but considering this is this will be recorded, maybe that's not the best. Lots of CDs with Sharpie on them, right? Lots of right yeah, CDs. Yes, so I have a notebook somewhere in the basement with with lots of CDs and Sharpies on them. That was... <laughs> And, and, you know, obviously the people who make their living, you know, kind of making that media and selling it, we're trying to figure out a way to stop copying of digital, you know, media files from completely overwhelming their, their kind of business model. So they came up with the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, DMCA, which 
does a bunch of things. You know, it creates these, they call them DRMs, digital rights management tools. And it's this, basically these locks that, that basically lock a person to a copy of the media. And if you break those DRM shields, there's a set of really severe penalties. So I think it's like five years or, you know, per example. Um, and basically the news is that uh, every three years, the librarian of Congress, you know, as part of the copyright office gets to review exemptions to the law saying that, like literally to grant permission to hack and to circumvent these DRM shields. And they, this last time that they updated those standards, you know, about a month ago, um, they basically granted sweeping exemptions to basically anything, <laughs> you know, having to do with self-repair or repair. Basically said, if, if it's for the purposes of fixing the device, you can basically ignore those, you know, DRM shields. You have the legal right to hack the device. These exemption hearings happen every three years, so they're a little bit of a trailing indicator, but 2015 was the last time, and there was an extension granted then um, specifically for tr- for farm equipment. Um, is this, I guess, an outgrowth or an expansion of that? Yeah, I mean, this is, um, we are getting more exemptions every time. So as the Copyright Office, as the Librarian of Congress becomes an expert in, you know, cybersecurity, which is not probably what they expected in their job description, you know, as they were getting more expertise and, you know, folks like Cory Doctorow and the good folks at uh, EFF and um, have been kind of educating them and talking about the misuse of uh, the DMCA to block people from really kind of controlling the equipment that they buy. We've been getting more and more exemptions and now it's basically you know, th- th- this last round was a huge kind of victory for the right to modify and to adjust and to fix things that you own. What don't we get um, with this Librarian of Congress uh, 1201, DMCA 1201 ruling? And how much daylight is there between what is now allowed by way of the exemption from the Librarian of Congress and a real right to repair either at the federal level or at the state level? The biggest obstacle to repair is not having the right information or parts or software to do the job. And that's what right to repair would require companies to provide us. So if you have a John Deere tractor, and like I said, it locks down the the whole unit if it detects a part that's you know, not handshaking properly with the, you know, software because John Deere didn't, you know, run their proprietary process, they would just have to make that repair software, their calibration software available. They they can't uh, monopolize that. So right to repair is really about tackling the antitrust, the monopoly problems in the repair industry where people do not have an option for repair outside of the original manufacturers. Um, who can charge whatever they want because they're the only ones with the keys to the kingdom. And they can also decide not to fix things, which, you know, drives up plant obsolescence and, and you know, the the wastefulness of the kind of disposable electronics that we see all around us. Americans throw out 416,000 cell phones every day. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're really is a lot for these manufacturers to gain if we essentially just treat all electronics as disposable um, but that's not in our interest, and we plan to do something about that. 
Yeah, I mean, you point out that, you know, this really gives you sort of the right to reset your device, I guess, to its factory settings and in order to repair it or troubleshoot it. Is, is there much beyond that that you can do with as a result of this um, Librarian of Congress ruling if you were of a mind to want to modify, tinker with uh, your electronic device? Yes. My understanding of it is that if you were to circumvent the you know, digital rights management tools of most of consumer electronics, video game systems are, are not included yet, but a lot of other electronics, you know, for, whatever, for, for your own purposes and to, to, to maintain the device for yourself and because it's yours, then you are not vulnerable to prosecution under the DMCA. But there's obviously a lot of a lot more that we need before it's you know we're equipped to to kind of we're kind of given full ownership of the stuff that we have purchased and own. You know we still have a lot. There's still a lot manufacturers are trying to retain control over. Um, what are some of the other ways that manufacturers are trying to um, elbow out the independent or aftermarket repair and service industry? I mean, elbow out is the is a good term for it. I mean, they create all kinds of barriers to independent repair. Uh, and the Apple example, I mean, there was another one from just this week where uh, it was reported that Apple and Amazon reached a deal to have Amazon carry more Apple products in their store, but on the condition that Amazon removed a set of vendors who refurbish Apple devices and sell them. Yeah. On Amazon. From Amazon, so, huge online marketplace obviously. Yeah, it Amazon has a pretty extensive refurbished electronics uh section and there's actually some pretty consumer friendly you know, elements to the way that they do that, which gives people the ability to kind of get these tremendous discounts from getting refurbished electronics and actually have a little bit of uh, buying protection because Amazon's customer service uh, extends a bunch of that. But that's all good. You know, for the small refurbishers who, especially people who are fixing things that Apple just doesn't, I mean, there's a whole set of things that Apple doesn't fix. And people who have filled that space, now they can't. That now Apple is trying to block them from having access to the market to sell these refurbished older computers, which otherwise, if they can't fix them and sell them, these things are just going to end up as garbage. This is a very troubling development. I mean, we need to have the ability to maintain and sell and keep using old electronics because the e-waste problem is expensive and toxic and dangerous and wasteful. People still want to use these devices. Yeah. And we shouldn't stop them just because it's not in the interest of Apple's shareholders. That's not acceptable. Use. And I know that one of the things that they've been doing, like Apple's been doing, is like putting their logo on even minuscule little interior parts to their products that no one's ever going to see. So, I mean, there's no branding value to it. But one of the reasons they do that is to exert con copyright control over that and prevent the reuse of that part. They're, they're kind of reading the copyright as saying, well, anything that has our logo on it, we control for the entire life of that thing. Even it's, it's, We don't lose control of it when we sell it to you. We're just sort of licensing you that cord with the Apple logo on it. And God forbid you should try and resell it or use it in some other device. You know, you're infringing our copyright by doing that. 
There is one other application of the tiny logos on the cables and the interior parts of an iPhone, which is if you salvage parts of the phone and then you combine them with like generic parts. Uh, so you have like an original Apple screen, yeah. but then you have the cables that connect it to the phone are, let's just say they're generic after, you know, generic uh, replacements. Apple's position is now it's a counterfeit phone because even though it says Apple on it, it's not 100% um, Apple, so therefore it's counterfeit. I mean, you could literally take your phone apart, ship it to yourself in Canada, and they could seize it at the border and say it was a counterfeit. Let's tie this back into the topic of cybersecurity, information security. Security is one of the levers, I, I would guess, that manufacturers can pull to try and convince the unconvinced that um, they need to control the entire product lifecycle um, of, of whatever it is that they make, both the sale and then the aftermarket use of it. They kind of argue that giving somebody physical access to the device who's not an OEM certified person is like handing it over to a foreign government, you know, like, um, you know, plugging in the USB key that they gave out at the, uh, you know, North Korean summit or something. I mean, yeah. I, I had a, I was on, it was a, a USB fan, I think. Wasn't it a fan? It was a yes, USB yeah, fan. Yeah, that was uh, definitely <laughs> plug that into your computer. Yeah. Um, nothing funny on that. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, I was on a radio show, and the the uh, security um, industry hired, uh, you know, kind of a pretty knowledgeable security expert to talk about, you know, why it's cybersecurity risk, et cetera. And, and, and that person brought up that if, you know, you're in like the DOD or you're in a highly secure, you know, kind of compromisable, you know, with sensitive data at an industry, they don't want you taking your personal electronics to any repair tech because it's easier to, you know, install a keylogger or something like that if you physically have the device, which is kind of one of those things like, well, sure. yes, <laughs> right? And, yeah. and But the $18 an hour employee at the OEM shop is completely uncorruptible. The thing I like to say is, you know, we should have cybersecurity on the things that we own, and we should care about that. But we do not like unilaterally deputize the manufacturers of those devices to have to be completely responsible for the security because one, if we did, they would all. They, I mean, very few of them would be having passing grades. I mean, there's so much they they produce such a vulnerable ecosystem of products. And then two, it just so happens that giving people the power to secure their own things and to fix security problems is on the whole more secure. I mean, the truth is that when you, when we're looking at the ecosystem of like interconnected devices that we have now, just think about if you run a hospital, how are you going to secure everything? Are you going to have to go through 30 or 40 different equipment manufacturers that separately manage all the different interconnected devices that you have in that device, I mean, that, 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 that uh, you know, that hospital, because they're, you know, obviously a security system is only as, as safe as the weakest link. My take is that right to repair is a, an improvement on device security. I mean, I think the industry's arguments are kind of 
I understand why they are effective in lobbying, but I, I, but I do think we need to push back. We need to make these points, right? We're, we're hamstrung from addressing the kind of nightmare of security in this Internet of Things by manufacturers who are trying to lock down our access to their, you know, kind of poorly <laughs> defended, you know, products. So uh, last year, there were uh, right-to-repair bills proposed, I think, in what, 19 states, Nathan? They were active in 19 states last year, and, and yeah. well, this year, in 2018. Um, so 2018, 19 states, um, they were all defeated or at least um, died often in committee. What do you think are the chances of getting one or more of these bills passed? I think we're going to see more uh, interest in more states. I think we're going to see more consumer interest, more public kind of outrage the reason why we kind of had a big surge in legislative interest in the last year was really, I think, driven by uh, Battery Gate in December of um, 2017. Explain what that is. It was uh, discovered that in December of 2017 that Apple was, through the iOS 11, uh, throttling the processor on iPhones, uh, I think 6s and 7s, if uh, that uh, the phone detected that the battery was kind of starting to wear down. And so all of a sudden people, you know, it was like December, November, December, people are updating their... Just in time for the holiday season. Yeah, it's funny <laughs> how that works, right? So they all of a sudden their their phone slows down. Their ba- I mean, their battery life is like, is going, is, is, because the new iOS is drained. It was a very, in, it was a more inefficient, operating systems so it drained a lot of battery and people were having performance problems from the so they throttled the processor so the phones are freezing and slow and uh you know you know maybe pushed people to buy new phones uh and then some security researchers uh, or some uh, you know kind of phone researchers put, tested these processors and found yes this this processor is being throttled or gated um and so they released these findings it was like this obviously like a big to-do, Apple apologized-ish, said that they would offer free or low cost, it was like $30 battery um, exchanges if this was affecting you. Um, But, you know, in the meantime, you know, like a lot of people felt like they were being, like Apple was using this as a trick to kind of push them to buy a new device. And in fact, uh, an Italian court, the like the antitrust court in Italy, just handed a, uh, a two fines to Apple. One was for, uh, you know, giving people an update that slowed down their phone, and the second was for basically failing to communicate any of these things effectively to customers, being somewhat deceitful, um, in reaching into your phone and slowing it down it, it, instead of just saying, "Hey." That $1,000 device you have needs a $40 battery. Mm-hmm. It's a simple fix. I mean, batteries are like tires on a car. I mean, they right. only last so long. It's the right. only part guaranteed to wear out on the phone. Okay, so we're, you know, a week or so after the 2018 midterm elections. Obviously, we have some many news faces coming to Washington, D.C. Where is right to repair in the firmament of, uh, let's say, the incoming House Democratic majority or a narrow GOP Senate majority? Is this an issue that has bipartisan support um, or does it fall victim to the same kind of left versus right divide that kneecap so many other important um, pieces of legislation. Everywhere right to repair has been debated, it's been a bipartisan issue. And I mentioned earlier the problems that farmers are having on their 
farm equipment, um, yeah. their tractors and other and combines and other pieces of large equipment. There's been a lot of organizing like within the ag industry to push for changes on this because it's very expensive and inconvenient. Um, and really threatens their livelihood. Yeah. And I mean, many of the states, I mean, or Massachusetts, where we both are, it was one of the states that put forward a right to repair law. It also didn't didn't get out of committee, basically. But many of the other states were agricultural states. They were Midwest and, and Western states. Yeah, it was a total mix. I mean, you know, California, Massachusetts, but then Iowa, Nebraska, Wyoming, because it, if it falls into the typical quagmire of, you know, kind of the partisan divide, I, I think that we would have really failed as the advocates, because this is not an issue which, you know, should be, should be is subject to that. I mean, everybody owns stuff. Everybody has an interest in, whether it's a consumer interest, whether it's an environmental interest, whether it's just a affordability, you know, if you're running a a business and you need to maintain equipment, you know, if you don't have the freedom to choose and the, a free market around repair, then you're going to pay a lot more for potentially not as good a quality service. So you you know, competition is critical, uh, and and there's really a lot of applications for this, and and they're really the only kind of people on the opposite side are the narrow special interests who benefit from a fairly monopolized control of repair. And, you know, we, uh, we expect, you know, this to continue to be a broadly bipartisan issue. Um, the other thing that I will n- note is that, um, you know, right to repair is a state issue because, um, you know, that's where most sales are. And then that's also where contract law sits. And so we, we continue to think that this should be pursued in the states. But one of our bill sponsors from the Rochester area of New York State, you know, we got very close to a breakthrough in Albany last year. And it, our Joe, Joseph Morelli is now the, the representative-elect um, from Rochester, and he will be in Congress. And he will join some other representatives in Congress on both sides of the aisle who have engaged with us on this issue in the past and are supportive of right to repair. And the things that we need to do in Congress are a little different than the things that we need to do in the states. We talked at the, earlier in the show about the DMCA and the problems we have. We believe that the DMCA is something that should be addressed. Like It should be used to stop uh, you know piracy of software and, and digital media, and it should be clarified. You can't just call everything uh, your, your digital intellectual property and then use it to control all the devices in our, in our world. Right. I mean, one of the things that seems to have happened is that, you know, the, the, the amount of, of stuff that is that has some kind of DRM attached to it has gone from, you know, video games and CDs and DVDs to basically everything, um, you know, washing machines and tractors and so on, medical devices and phones. And and the law, obviously written 20 years ago now, um, I guess maybe just didn't foresee that that was what was going to happen. Or maybe it did. I don't know. <laughs> well, it doesn't matter if it did or if it didn't. It has problems and we we're going to fix them. Yeah. And if the the listeners are kind of yelling at their um, speaker or whatever and, and passionate about this, just listening to you, where can they learn more about what might be going on around them or um, kind of lend their support to this uh, movement? Sure. Well, you can find me on Twitter at uh, N Proctor, N-P-R-O-C-T-O-R. And there's a link to our kind of campaign homepage in the bio of my Twitter feed. Um, you can, in, which is uh, you, also you can probably find at usperg.org, uh, and then mm-hmm. 
uh, it's all it, repair.org is the coalition of all these interests who are working on right to repair. So if you want to find out about what might be going on in your state, or if there's been a bill filed, there's a pretty good tool on repair.org to find out all that information. All right, Nathan Proctor from MassPerg, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on Security Ledger Podcast. Paul, it's been such a pleasure. Nathan Proctor is the head of U.S. Perg's Right to Repair campaign. Up next, President Donald Trump put his signature to a major overhaul of the U.S. government's cyber capabilities on November 16th when he signed legislation creating a new cyber directorate within the Department of Homeland Security. The Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency will operate as an independent directorate within DHS with responsibility for cybersecurity and infrastructure security programs. But our next guest, Jamil Jaffer, the vice president of strategy at the firm IronNet, said that reorganizing DHS is just a small piece of the puzzle. Jaffer said that more international cooperation between governments and private firms may be what's needed to achieve security in an era of disruptive and destructive cyber attacks like the recent NotPetya and WannaCry worms. Jamil Jaffer, I'm Vice President for Strategy and Partnerships at IronNet Cybersecurity. IronNet is a uh, cybersecurity firm founded about four years ago by General Keith Alexander, the former director of uh, the U.S. National Security Agency and the founding commander of U.S. Cyber Command. Uh, Our basic construct is bringing uh, advanced persistent defense to corporate clients. The idea being that we are uh, looking for behavioral anomalies on network traffic, Um, identifying potential threats. Uh, So getting past the old signature-based method of threat detection and really moving to behaviors um, and doing that at scale. You know, today, uh, there's a lot of talk about sharing threat intelligence. So what we're talking about is sharing all of the potential threats on your network so that even the stuff that falls below the radar that you think is not particularly alerting or problematic, but is simply anomalous, we believe that if you share all that information across an ecosystem, first across companies in a single sector, and then across companies in multiple sectors, perhaps even with the government, if appropriate, and perhaps even government to government, that you can identify things and trends that you might not have seen within a single enterprise. And so there's a real opportunity uh, to leverage the knowledge and, and the understanding that others have of their own network uh, to better defend yourself. What we're here to talk about is sort of broadening that concept. Um, and really talking about the need for almost like a cyber NATO, a alliance of countries sharing information about threats and attacks and also working cooperatively to address outbreaks. You know, recently we saw the NotPetya and WannaCry outbreaks, so these kind of virulent and very destructive attacks that, that might pop up very suddenly. Talk a little bit, I guess, about practically... Um, how that might work, and insofar as there is a system of cooperation or coordination today, what is it? You know, it's a great question, uh, Paul. You know, so let's talk at sort of the most granular level first and sort of expand outward. So, you know, if you think about an individual company, right, and an individual company going up against nation-state attackers, today we know that countries like China uh, are constantly seeking to uh, go after American companies' intellectual property uh, and reuse it for economic purposes uh, in China. Uh, We also know that Russia has attempted to manipulate our electoral system and create dissension uh, within the American public. Uh, We know that Russia has also, uh, through information made public by our governments, has sought to obtain deep access to critical infrastructure networks, not necessarily to do anything now, but potentially to have capabilities in place uh, and, uh, you know, for a later conflict. Uh, We've also seen 
uh, nation states like Iran and North Korea actually take destructive action against American companies uh, in the private sector where they've seen it in their interest. Everything from very low-level non-destructive stuff like the, the DDoS attacks against the banks all the way up to actually deleting uh, and, and bricking computers um, in the Las Vegas, in the case of Las Vegas Sands Corporation and in the case of Sony Corporation. So we've seen the sort of spread, spread spectrum of attacks by nation states against American corporations. But what's odd about that scenario, Paul, is that you know, in no other context do we expect corporate actors to defend themselves against nation state opponents. After all, we don't expect Target um, or Walmart to have surface-to-air missiles on the roof of their warehouses. Yet today in cyberspace, we expect companies individually to defend themselves against everything from the script kitty uh, sitting in his in his parents' basement all the way to a nation-state attacker. And it simply makes no sense. And so when it comes to nation-state attackers, particularly those who can move very in a very agile way um, and sort of fly below the radar, we believe uh, at IronNet that the thing to do is to bring companies together to talk to one another, work with one another in real time, sharing data about potential threats, and then sharing that collective information across an ecosystem of multiple companies, multiple sectors, potentially with the government, um, and then, as you say, potentially across government boundaries with like-minded nations. Uh, because we know that, look, in certain parts of the world, say in Asia, there's there's definitely a threat from China there. In the Middle East, we know there's a threat from uh, from uh, Iran. And so in a lot of countries, in a lot of cases, we have alliances with those countries. And so sharing in cyberspace with those countries might make a lot of sense for us as a nation to get ahead of those threats that are coming at us. Um, oftentimes after they hit the countries in that region. What, in your mind, would effective private sector and public sector coordination around cybersecurity look like? Yeah, well, you know, General Alexander has talked a lot about this. And one of the things, one of the concepts that he's laid out that I think is really an interesting one is this concept of sort of a radar picture for cyberspace, right? The idea that, you know, today we don't have a common common operating picture of what's going on in cyberspace. When I say we, I mean private sector corporations, uh, writ large across the U.S. the U.S. sort of cyberspace boundary, as if there were a boundary, but you know, and and the U.S. government doesn't have a vision of what's happening in its in its environment either. What's happening to its companies? What's happening to its own its own entities? It may have some vi- some visibility to that, but not a lot. And so, really, sharing information at machine speed in real time uh, to create that common operating picture could be a game changer, just because you would understand better the threats that are coming at the nation writ large. So that's number one. I think number two, uh, to the extent that you believe that uh, it's in a, it's in a nation's interest to have have the nation's arms uh, defend it in a time of conflict, um, and that it's their responsibility to defend uh, corporate America or corporate France or corporate U- corporate uh, England uh, from nation state threats, then you've got to figure out how to make them work together with 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 private sector systems. That doesn't mean you want the NSA or Cyber Command patrolling the boundaries of the U.S. internet as if that were even a thing, right? But what you do want is the ability to interoperate so that if and when the balloon does go up, uh, these these organizations can, can, one, provide assistance, but more than provide assistance, really get ahead of the threat and, to the extent it's appropriate within their authorities, respond to such threats. Because what you don't want necessarily is private sector companies doing that response, right? We've never really sort of embraced that, even though a lot of people have talked about it, the idea of granting that the old school, you know, piracy letters of market reprisal to go up against nation states by private sector actors. I don't think anybody really serious is saying that we should do that now. Uh, but I do think that there is a gap today about how to respond. And one way to address that is to create a common operating picture and two, uh, to provide the ability to interoperate and then talk about authorities and responsibilities and, you know, empower uh, uh, the government and, and industry to work together and, and then the government to act if and when that when the time comes. 
Are there models that you can look to around the world um, of governments that do that have achieved that level of integration? I think, for example, of like of Israel, right, where there is a tremendous amount of overlap between the military and the information security community there and where there's a lot of government interest in protecting critical infrastructure and private sector organizations from hackers. You know, Israel is a great example. I think, you know, in a lot of ways, Israel is a challenging example for, for the United States because, you know, the Israelis have made a decision about how they want to maintain their security. And they're willing to give up a lot of freedom to defend themselves because they are constantly under pressure, I mean, constantly under threat. And so the kind of security screens they go through at airports, the kind of uh, uh, surveillance measures they'll, they permit, uh, the kind of cybersecurity cooperation they have with the private sector, I think it's just different than what the U.S. will probably ever be able to achieve just because of the, the, the nature of the state of Israel and the threat it finds itself under constantly day in and day out. Mm-hmm. You know, but the U.S. does have, there are places to look. I, you've, you've noted some, but I'd also point to, the, 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 to England, to the U.K., Right, they've created this national cybersecurity center that really um, is 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 demonstrating some real collaboration opportunities between the public and private sectors. Now, interestingly, in the UK, they've been able to house that entity within GCHQ, their surveillance uh, organization. I think in the US, that would be difficult uh, just because of the the political ramifications, and so we've decided to house that. Um, at DHS, and now we have this creation of this new agency with the new legislation that just took that just passed last week, and the president signed. I think we'll, you know, DHS has had some growing pains. I think to be fair, when it's come to cyberspace, we've got some really strong leadership over there from uh, Kirsten Nielsen at the top, uh, Chris Krebs. Uh, we've got some other great cyber leaders throughout the government, Karen Evans at DOE. So I think there is a real opportunity in this administration to really grow a cyber capability. Um, you know, outside the intelligence community, outside of DOD, uh, that can work collaboratively with industry and bring in some of those IC intelligence community um, and DOD capabilities and really share those effectively. Um, you know, more work needs to be done in that space, but I think we, we're on the verge of opportunity. I think the UK is one good place to look. So you mentioned CISA, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA. I'm interested in your thoughts on the importance of that agency and also what the practical implications are for U.S. government cybersecurity. Well, look, I think it's a real opportunity for the U.S. government. We've long um, assigned to DHS the responsibility for cybersecurity measures and, and working with companies to really protect them better. The challenge is, is that you know DHS has a lot of responsibilities. It's an expansive mission. Uh, so this represents a, a real focus on that mission. Uh, uh, in an ideal world, it's going to be resourced properly. In an ideal world, it's going to bring together uh, in a way that it really hasn't happened to date, the intelligence community and DOD capabilities together with DHS capabilities and, and really make that available to the private sector. If that happens effectively, that's going to be a huge move in the right direction. To be fair, there have been challenges uh, doing that um, ever since you know we in the Bush administration assigned this responsibility to DHS. And so there have been some debates about should this go back to NSA? Um, should it go to Cyber Command? Who really has the pen mm-hmm. here? I think there's a role for everybody to play. Um, at the end of the day, Cyber Command's role is looking overseas and really sort of bringing deterrence to bear against the cyber actors that come up against us and, and sort of holding them at risk um, and, and holding them responsible as well as providing defense for uh, the government. Uh, DHS is a great response mission and a really important uh, resilience mission, right? And then NSA has that ability to collect intelligence and share that with the community. Have we done a good job of bringing together all the U.S. components and really getting to work with industry well and sharing both classified and unclassified threat information? Absolutely not. Is there more to be done? For sure. And is this a good step in the right direction? Yes, it is. 
but you know, to be seen whether we're actually able to effectively carry it out. As we're looking at this, as you've termed it, cyber NATO, or this um, goal, ultimate goal, maybe of uh, more coordination and more cooperation on cybersecurity between and among governments, you know, it strikes me. I mean, one of the challenges is is sort of where do you draw the line if you follow threat intelligence firms and the types of reports that they document of nation state activities. There's a wide range of operations from clearly illegal and and provocative, you know, the uh, attacks against uh, Ukraine electrical grid or not Petya or WannaCry, down to sort of mundane intelligence ops, you know, information gathering, uh, traditional espionage. If we're going to move into this era of greater and closer cooperation, where are we going to have to draw the line as to what we look the other way at as just a part of the type of, you know, great game that countries play doing espionage on each other and what is clearly out of bounds. Yeah, no, Paul, that's a really important question. And one that I think a lot of times the terminology that we use uh, when we talk about cyber activities actually creates part of the challenge, right? We, today, when in the popular media, and I know you're much more careful about this, but today in the popular media, when we talk about cyber attacks, we mean everything uh, that you just described, everything from classic intelligence operations, small-scale activities, all the way to massive attacks that, have, that create billions of dollars in damage, like NotPetya. Um, and so we have to be really cautious about using that term cyber attack and, and, and explain what we mean by it. Um, you know, this, the old saw uh, that uh, gentlemen and gentlewomen don't read each other's mail uh, back in the day was never true, right? We've always read uh, the mail, so to speak, of our opponents and of our allies to better understand uh, what their plans and intentions are. And so all the sort of hand-wringing that we heard after the Snowden leaks that, oh, perhaps the U.S. government was surveilling Angela Merkel's phone um, because, yeah, well, she's an ally, right? Well, of course we're surveilling uh, their phones, and of course they're surveilling ours. It's, it's part of the it's part of the great game, as you say, that nations play. Yeah, right. um, and so some of these activities, uh, you know, some of these activities are things that will always happen and that should happen. And that, frankly, so take the OPM hack, right? People are very spun up about it, very upset. I was obviously involved in it, having had a security clearance. Um, it's a ter- it's a terrible thing to know that all that information has gone out the back door. But honestly, that's just a good intelligence operation. And had we had the opportunity to do something like that to another nation state, you can be sure we would have done it in a heartbeat, right? But then you talk about things like NotPetya, and that's a great example. I'm glad you raised it. You know, there's a great article in Wired magazine a few months back about about uh, about NotPetya, um, and it what really demonstrates is that was an attack aimed by Russia against Ukraine. Uh, but it had huge collateral damage consequences. Companies like Maersk, right, who uh, who the shipping provider controls roughly twenty percent of the world's shipping, right, you know, take down for weeks uh, in part of its operations. Um, containers lost for months. I mean, you know, billions of dollars in damage. Not to mention seven or eight other major European and American companies, Mondelez, right, the the uh, the the uh, you know durable goods manufacturer. Um, it, it, these are a real challenge, and so um, and they, they weren't even the victim. They weren't even the intended victims of the attack, and so you know these are scenarios where you really have got to hold nation states to account. And what that means is that nation states like ours have to develop credible deterrence. And today in cyberspace. We don't have credible deterrence, and there's a lot of reasons for that, and we can talk more about that if you'd like, but you know, that's, that I think is one of the biggest challenges we face today. 
There is this kind of thought that, oh, well, we do have deterrence and we, we can kind of rattle our cyber sword when we need to and get company, countries like China or Russia to back off by, you know, f- suggesting to them what we're capable of if we chose to do it. Uh, do you think that that's mostly just talk uh, or or do you think there that the U.S. via its intelligence agencies, military, does have a deterrent that it could use if it needed to? Well, certainly I think we have a deterrent. Whether we use it effectively or not, I think is a separate question, right? You know, classic deterrence theory teaches us that in order to deter somebody, you have to be willing to tell them, uh, A, what, what some of your capabilities are, B, what things they might do that would cause you to respond, C, what your response would likely look like, and D, if and when they do that thing to you, you have to be willing to respond. And across the board, when it comes to cyberspace in particular, we have not applied those classic rules of deterrence. We don't talk about our capabilities unless they're leaked out, right? Because we hold them very tightly classified. And I'm not saying give away the secret sauce, but you know, you can show some of your some of your older capabilities without showing the latest, greatest stuff, right? Just like we do in the military space, right? You could talk about what your red lines are. You could talk about what your response might be. And by the way, one of the fetishes we have about cyberspace is this assumption that when something happens in cyber, you have to respond in cyber. Of course, that's not true. We also think that in order to, to respond in cyber, you have to have perfect attribution. Never been true in any realm of international affairs. We never needed perfect attribution when it came to you know, responding to back in the 80s to Gaddafi's uh, bombing of the, of the, of the Marine uh, of that, of that uh, facility in Europe. Right? We didn't need perfect attribution. We didn't need his voice on tape saying, I ordered this attack. Um, and the same is true in cyberspace. Just because it's zeros and ones doesn't mean we need perfect attribution. Um, and so, you know, when it comes to this stuff, I think that we've got to think about uh, deterrence in the classic way, but apply it to the modern world and not and not you know not have these sort of hangups about cyberspace that we often have. Oh, you have to respond in cyber. You have to have perfect attribution. None of that's been true historically for U.S. government activity. It doesn't need to be true in cyber just because it's zeros and ones. History, unfortunately, tells us that typically you get a lot of movement and progress on these issues after a huge tragedy. So, you know, the United Nations in World War II, you know, World War I, the Geneva Conventions, and so on. Um, is that what we're going to need here? And uh, if so, have we seen that yet or is it yet to happen? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to say that we've seen it yet. Uh, we know that some of these nation states like Iran and North Korea are frankly less deterrable in the classic sense than nation states like Russia and China. That puts us in a very concerning spot. And if we don't show the willingness to actually take action and to deter and to deter in a way that is seen by not that nation, but by other nations as well, so sort of deter in public, then I think it's going to be very hard for us uh, to to do something before there's a major event. I think that uh, we've got to recognize that there is a very real threat out there. Um, and that the American people are going to turn around and look to the government and industry and say, why weren't you guys working better together? Why didn't you have plans in place? Why didn't you take actions ahead of time to stave this off? And if we wait for that so-called cyber 9-11, which, you know, I'm skeptical of, of, its, of, the, of the likelihood of it happening, but if and when it does happen, I think there will be a response and there'll be an outcry as to why the government did do something more when it clearly knows this threat is out there. I mean, it's been... It's been years since Secretary Leon Panetta uh, said that the role of the Department of Defense is to defend the nation's cyberspace, and yet even today, uh, DOD doesn't have the authorities, uh, the rules of engagement that it needs, and frankly, the resources it needs to actually effectively carry out that mission. Jamil Jaffer of IronNet, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. Thanks, Paul. It's been great. Jamil Jaffer is a vice president of strategy and business development at the firm IronNet.